Thanks so much, Costa, and uh, good morning, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. Uh, just to clarify, I do actually um, apply risk management techniques when we go flying and, and paragliding. As you know, like you're on very thin lines, I make sure I've got enough of them, just in case one breaks or, or you know. Uh, check the equipment and look at the conditions. I think it's a very safe sport, ultimately. You know, so many more of you should uh, hopefully be joining me after today. <laughs> um, Costa asked me just to talk about um, DC investment strategies, and I think it's quite important um, that we start off with why it's so important in the industry. Um, as you know, the, the industry has consolidated over the last number of years, and DC assets now represent a very significant portion um, of assets in the, in the industry. So, here we go. So what we did is we just had a look at, over the last two years, um, how the industry's actually changed. And this is a summary of FSB dates that I pulled out. And we actually just had a look at the number of funds in the industry, their benefit structure, the nature, whether it's DB or DC. Um, and at the bottom, you can actually see the number of funds. The number of funds have actually been declining in the industry. Currently, we have around about just under 3,000 funds in the industry, of which the majority now are actually defined contribution, not defined benefit. But what's very interesting is you can see the bubbles. The bubbles actually represent the growth in assets in those specific structures over the last two years. And the biggest bubbles are, and the growth has actually been in umbrella type A, type B funds. And you can actually see a very small growth in the ordinary defined benefit funds um, uh, industry. Aggregate defined contribution fund assets sitting at 1.2 trillion and that's based on the FSB data in, in 2015, which is based on the annual financial statements at the last uh, year end of those particular funds. So it's a very significant industry. And of the total industry, we've got about, in excluding the GEPF, uh, the largest DB fund in South Africa, we've got 75% of the total industry actually in defined contribution. So my talk today is really about how are we investing in defined contribution funds? Is it appropriate, given where we are today, the market volatility that we're seeing, how liabilities are actually moving in relation to those assets, um, thanks to our Greek friends? So moving on, um, Costa mentioned the, 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 the regulations that came out. National Treasury released, I think it was on the 22nd of July, some default, some regulations around default investment strategies. And I've got some of the key points here. There are many other points. But for our talk today, I just want to highlight a few. Two particular issues that I think are quite relevant that maybe people gloss over when they look at these things because they focus mostly on, you know, we're not allowed to performance fees anymore and some of the other things. These are actually quite significant. Um, and talk to what Costa was mentioning on, are we focusing the right things and our members are focusing on the right things. Is it about returns, or should it be about the income and the goals at retirement? And the regulations here talk very much to going specific to the member. It says that default investment portfolios can vary between members, You're, the way you structure them, based on age, retirement date, accumulated savings, pensionable salary, or other conditions. And I think this is actually a great regulation that starts recognizing that each individual member in your defined contribution funds are unique. And you should actually be varying investment strategies differently for each member based on their specific circumstances. 
It also goes on to say that other factors that need to be taken into account are appropriate preferences of balancing risk and return, likely future membership, financial sophistication, and ability to access individual financial advice. But I think where this is going is really recognizing that each member is different and weigh up different things. And for many years, the way that defined contribution strategies have been structured have actually been based on an assumption of the average member. Many years ago, each member was invested in one portfolio. You, many of you remember when we converted from DB to DC. What were the typical investment strategies? It was a balanced fund, a one portfolio. Later on, it was recognized that people are actually different, and we introduced capital protection options close to retirement. And then later on, when the technology became available, life stage investing became more mainstream, where people were phased down in ten, mainly 10 years before retirement, recognizing that age and term to retirement are actually factors. And that was the first time that it was recognized in the industry that there are various factors that people need to look at to, to, to come up with an optimal uh, investment strategy. But let's look at what, how many members actually fit the average. And this is some interesting statistics. How many of you, when you put together uh, an investment strategy for a fund, your objective that you specify in your investment policy statement is we, our objective is to meet a replacement ratio of 75% over a 35-year period. And your entire strategy is based on that, your building blocks, your returns, etc the vast majority of funds actually put that in. How many funds do you think actually can achieve a 75 in the first place? Very few. The average fund is, is probably going to achieve far lower than that. The stat over here is that there are only 8% of active members over the age of 55, and this is a, a quite a large database, um, and some, uh, um, in some segments it might even be worse than this, only 8% who would achieve an expected replacement ratio of 75. In addition, there are only 2% that would expect to have a 35-year service at retirement. And then what about your current members? Even if you take the younger members, only 38% currently, if they were to preserve and continue in the funds right now, expect to have service greater than 35 years. And only 15%, and this is quite an interesting one, all our investment strategies are based on objective of 75 with an assumption of 35 years. That only applies to 15% of your current membership. 15. So you're not even covering the majority of your members in your funds. So the reality is that people are very different. Your investment strategy has a huge assumption of the average. So let's break that down. Everyone is unique. This is an actual example of a fund that we, we did that shows the expected replacement ratios for different ages. The green shows where people are expected to have at least a 75% replacement ratio, and the red is when they're actually expected to be below a 50%. The bottom line is that you can see every member has a different savings, history, salary, and expected replacement ratio. So why do we continue investing and putting together investment strategies based on the average? Another issue here is each member is different. So what we've got here is the hierarchy of retirement needs. And similar to Maslow, who knows Maslow? Everybody knows Maslow. Maslow says that we've got a pyramid that starts off with basic needs, where people need to be safe, 
secure. And then it builds up to safety, belonging, esteem. And eventually Maslow ends up with what is called self-actualization. Similar to Maslow, you can apply the same thing in retirement funding. So people at retirement, what are their needs? Well, you need basic needs covered. You need to make sure that you can put food on the table, emergency, healthcare, that you have a house. And that's the bottom pillar. And it's a very important aspect I think we sometimes forget when we put together investment strategies in South Africa. In the US, UK, etc., DC schemes are typically top-up. It's a top-up based on your, you know, you get a state old age pension, everybody gets it, it's pretty decent, and DC schemes are seen as top-up. And therefore, you can take more risks, you can be more risk-seeking, get more returns. In South Africa, the majority of those members have a dual objective. Yes, you need to have good returns, but you also need to make sure that you provide a basic minimum level of uh, um, lifestyle in retirement. And we need to make sure that investment strategies have those dual objectives. Very much uh, the, the, the way investments have worked in South Africa, it's about wealth generation. We're seeking returns. But actually it's more about seeking the income for each individual based on this hierarchy, but starting off with a basic minimum. And I think that needs to be an important point that needs to be incorporated. As you go up Maslow's hierarchy, safety, Safety means making sure that you have enough for emergencies that, and also longevity comes in over here. When people are living too long, we need to make sure that we've got sufficient there to, to have an income for life. And then eventually you go up to belonging esteem um, where you can spend money on, on, on family, friends, other things, your hobbies, etc. Unfortunately, what we do find in South Africa that although this is a theoretical model, people starting at the bottom going to the top, in South Africa, we see a lot of people actually skipping a few levels and going straight to the top, and it's aspirational spending. And that's why we find in South Africa a lot of people that are highly indebted, and the reason for that is, and it's the research has actually shown that in societies that are very unequal, that we tend to be spend aspirationally, and then we tend to get ourselves into trouble, indebted, etc., and we don't follow this particular model. So it's also important that people start realizing that you know, they need to live within their means. What does it mean? Uh, and according to this, um, but they, you know, those are, those are things for another, another day. The message I would like to leave you with here is when we are framing our investment strategy discussions with our trustees and on the funds, it's important to start off with a model like this. What are you trying to achieve? You're trying to achieve for each individual member at least a minimum level of income and then going up all the way up to self-actualization for each member. But the point is, each member is different. 75% just ain't gonna cut it. We already know most funds don't even provide that. How do you then look at um, strategies based on individual needs? So let's break it down. First, you need to start off with, what are all the factors that impact uh, your, your investment strategy? And I've got them here. So we start off on the left-hand side, and you'll see that actually there are more factors than what Treasury have put into the default uh, regulations. So we think it can probably be expanded in the regulations, but still, I think the regulations are a good start. First, age is a very important factor, how old you are, because that's time to invest for retirement, etc. Gender is quite important. It'll actually make a difference to how you, you know, convert your capital into an income. Um, we all know that uh, females live longer than males generally. We all know why, especially when they're married. You know, the husbands die younger, so that's unfortunate. Um, 
I need to watch that. <laughs> Luckily, my wife's not here today, so. <laughs> yeah, the other thing is retirement date. And yeah, I'm not talking about normal retirement date. We, we all put the investment strategies together based on a normal retirement date, and we phase everyone down for, how many people actually take normal retirement age or date? Very few. The majority of members actually retire early, two years early, and do they understand the consequences of doing so? Dependents. Our strategies don't take into account how many dependents. Typical strategies have an assumption that a person is married and also that they have um, you know, some allowance for, for dependents in a more implicit rather than explicit way. Savings. We need to take into account the accumulated savings to date. If I have uh, 100 Rand today and I'm 30 years old and my friend has 50 Rands, we earn the same salary but different uh, savings levels, is it appropriate that we still have the same investment strategy? Well, no, uh, because our goals are different, but also what we need to do with our investments is different um, to get there because we've saved differently, so our histories are different. Contribution levels. I think people forget about this. In your investment policy statement, you put in the 75. The average contribution rate in the industry is anywhere from 13 to 14% going to retirement. It is not expected to get you to 75. So why do we still have that in our investment policy statements? We need to actually change that and go down to an individual level, and it's better to start targeting ranges, but more at an individualized uh, level. And then the other important point is desired income and minimum income, based on what I mentioned earlier, the Maslow's hierarchy. Desired is the, the level at where you can realistically get to. It might not get you to self-actualization, but maybe somewhere in the middle of that pyramid. Minimum income is to cover that basic minimum. At the top there, though, typical life stages only look at age. It's the only factor that's individualized. It's a good start, but it's still insufficient to actually be uh, um, efficient for the entire and, and optimal for the investment portfolio. Life stage also makes key assumptions about an individual, about your gender. Everybody's treated the same. Actual retirement date, it assumes everyone retires at normal retirement date. Dependence, everybody's got a spouse or you've got half a spouse because it makes an assumption of, um, that you've got a proportion of a spouse at retirement with, and there's certain actuarial assumptions to that. Savings levels, people with same, uh, different savings levels are treated the same. Contribution levels, people with different contributions treated the same. Income requirements, it assumes an income requirement that probably your investment strategy can't even get to. Never mind, is it uh, realistic for that particular individual? But the environment is changing. We are now able to actually do these things at a more individualized level. Similar when uh, typical life stage strategies were brought into the industry, the reason why it didn't happen before is because administration and technology wasn't there. But when technology caught up, life stage became more mainstream. Today, you can actually do individualized, customized solutions uh, for an individual, and the technology is there now. Performance. Historically, people focused purely on performance, and I think the whole industry was built around this, seeking return relative to a benchmark. And the reason for that is it's quite easy to then sell that particular product. I think what needs to change now is instead of focusing on return, it's focusing on income, an income goal. Benchmarks need to change to focus on an income rather than an asset class, as an example. And all the measures that you use in your investment strategies, 
Um, you would all know, yeah, you use standard deviations, sharp ratios, Sortina ratios, all those good things. They're all based on wealth accumulation. They're all based on return-seeking strategies. They're not based on income generation. So they're not all appropriate for the main goal of retirement. They can still be useful for analyzing different asset classes, how those things are performing in line with expectations. But we've got no measures, except perhaps for your asset liability modeling that starts focusing on the goal. I think that's great, but we actually need to start doing a lot more. And I think that's where actuaries in the industry can do a lot more to, to support uh, that kind of um, uh, philosophy. Also, asset classes. Historically, we didn't have sufficient asset classes to support a strategy like this. The investment market, although we're quite uh, sophisticated in terms of shares and a whole lot of other things, we didn't have a very developed inflation-linked bond market, which is a very important component of uh, the risk-free assets for income generation. Over the last 15 years, we've seen quite a big development with more issuances of inflation-linked bonds, and a lot of the technologies actually developing to allow us to focus on income replacement as a specific goal. At that time, we also saw a lot of uh, new investment managers uh, coming about in the industry, LDI, liability-driven investment managers, focusing on a specific goal. To date, it's been focused more on the defined benefit funds, managing the interest rate risk and inflation risk uh, as the market has, has evolved. But very shortly, I'm pretty sure, the, those same principles can be applied in defined contribution to manage the same risks that your defined contribution members uh, actually face. So I think this is another area that uh, I think actuaries can get you know, very involved in, benchmark construction, uh, all of those, because actuaries really understand the liabilities and hence how you should invest for that. So that takes us to, we're now at a point where you can actually change the approach. And I think it's really important to start differentiating. We had the traditional approach that I've got two columns there. Uh, the traditional approach, which is, a really a high risk-adjusted return, your typical strategies that you find today, based on how you select your managers, they must perform really well, etc., etc. A goals-based approach, which I think is really what we should be focusing on, is, is not focused on the highest risk-adjusted return. It's focused on the highest probability of meeting a specific funding requirement. It's meeting the goal, the income goal, of the member, it's very different. The risk measures, how you build and construct the whole portfolio is very different. The risk definition, as I mentioned earlier, and tra traditional, is based on volatility or variability of returns. You know when you do a, a scatter plot showing risk and return, and you're advising a client on is it a better return for a level of risk? What you're actually doing is you're showing the risk of the asset relative to its asset class in general, or potentially just based on capital protection you are not showing the risk relative to income. So all of those kind of risk measures, your Sortina ratio, Sharp ratio, the benchmark you should be using actually is income replacement, not Aussie, not Orbi, not um, whether it's capital protection. So there's a lot of changes that are needed uh, on that. The goals-based approach is, the risk definition is risk of falling short of the target. I think we've done a good job in terms of asset liability modeling. That shows you the probability of meeting certain requirements. But the problem is we haven't gone further than that, uh, the way that actual mandates are constructed to uh, apply a pure goals-based approach. Investment strategies of the traditional is providing, providing you the highest risk-adjusted return. 
for a goals-based approach, it's actually about uh, the increasing the probability of meeting the target, and I've, and I've mentioned that. Performance measuring and monitoring also needs to change. Uh, currently, the success of a portfolio in your fund, when you go to a trustee meeting, or a Manco meeting for those of you in umbrella funds, we actually show returns on a one month, one year, three, five, relative to a benchmark. It actually means nothing to the member. It means nothing in terms of the probability of meeting the income. So those benchmarks actually must change. The norms in the industry, and I think these are kind of the detail around regulations that should be added to some of the, the things that Treasury has put out as well. Because the more we continue along this path, the less we're not going to meet those uh, goals for individuals. Another thing with performance measuring and monitoring is that we currently focus very much on past returns. We do very much very little about future measures and how our portfolio is expected to do in future to build up to that probability. I think it's important to start bringing those measures in, in place as well. And the last one that doesn't get enough um, uh, focus, I think, is sustainable investment. Under the traditional approach, many of you advise uh, clients, we put an ESG policy in place, put it in, and then we've got an annex share at the back, and it's principles. The problem is that um, it's, it's, it's not explicit. It doesn't go down to the heart of the problem. I think in a goals-based approach, you need to recognize the way you're investing right now impacts what happens in 30 years' time. It impacts the inflation rate. It impacts the price of securities at that time. It'll impact the volatility of the securities at that time. So it's important that you invest properly now, sustainably, because it's going to impact your replacement ratio in 30 years' time. Have we actually incorporated that quantitatively into our modeling, into our assumptions, into the way that we construct uh, the portfolios. So goals-based investing, if you shift that, this is what it's trying to do. This is a, a, a normal distribution that has a look at um, you know, over 10,000 retirees applying the old returns-based approach versus a goals-based approach. And what you can see is on the return, the standard solution, it has a very wide dispersion of results relative to an income goal. The, um, the goals-based solution has a much narrower distribution. What does that mean? It means that, yes, under your um, standard solutions, there can be many members getting more than your goal. But look how many people are falling short of the minimum. It's one in 10 members falling short to meet the goal, at least the minimum. And remember, in South Africa, your DC fund must provide for the minimum. That's the only savings most people have. But your goals-based approach is one in 50. So it reduces the risk dramatically, but it also increases the probability of being within a reasonable range of returns. And that is what retirement funding should be focusing on. Once you've met that, you can then start focusing on, on wealth generation, which is another, it's a different goal entirely, but don't conflate the two. And then I'd just like to end off before I hand over to, to my colleague, uh, Dwayne, just around the value of a goals-based approach. And it's quite interesting. I was lucky enough to have dinner with Professor Merton, um, was it two weeks ago? And over dinner, he was actually just provided a, a great lecture on goals-based investing. And he's really the proponent and the father of all the thinking around this. He was in South Africa really sharing a lot of that um, here. And he used this example of if you've got you know, a, a strategy, and here I've got strategy A, where you take a stock, Pick any stock. You take a stock and you hold it, but your, your approach is to get the best return over the next five years, let's say. Strategy B, which is a goals-based approach, 
you ask the client or the member, but what do you want to do with this stock? And you find out that actually his goal is to, you know, for whatever, for a car, for a university, for kids, and his goal is 150, he needs 150 rand. That's his goal, he doesn't want more. If you do that, the goals-based approach, actually, and you, and you take the, the same stock, and you use it under a goals-based approach that dynamically shifts into the risk-free asset, which in this case is just locking in your gain and moving to cash, right? If you hold it all the way up to where the stock is, if the stock is under 150, the, stock, the, the actual value of your portfolio under a goals-based approach is whatever the stock is worth, plus the value of a call option. The call option being that you, you're selling a call and the call is being sold at 150. Now, for those of you that forgot about uh, option pricing theory, etc., just a quick recap. At the top there, I've got um, call, uh, option pricing from the JSE Aussie 40. And you can see that in December 2015, 110% Aussie 40 call um, is, is worth 0.8%. Uh, if you extend the term, it's worth 4.57. So actually, if the longer the term, the higher the price of a, of a call. Also, it varies according to where your strike price is relative to your actual price, volatility, and a whole lot of factors. The bottom line is for a retirement income goal, you've got a long term to retirement. So it's that call, if you're going to use a goals-based approach to lock in your income at a certain level, has an implicit value. So at any particular point in time, if you build it into your portfolio construction, the way you manage, you always have the implicit call there. Yes, it's going to vary over time as volatility changes and uh, uh, the term to retirement changes, but you've always got it. And therefore, it always outperforms a traditional uh, return-seeking strategy if you look at it from a goal point of view. And then just to end off, this is exactly, you can apply that same thinking to retirement funding. You can take any return-seeking strategy, and I'll call it strategy B. That's the current strategies. It can be the, selecting the best manager, the best returns, etc. And you can optimize it any way you want. And you make sure that it's got minimum protection, um, because we need that in South Africa, because of, you know, you're trying to protect people on, on the... Uh, negative returns. But the point is you take this portfolio and you apply that same portfolio in a goals-based approach. What you now have is you've got a reference portfolio and you've got a risk-free income generation portfolio. And if you dynamically uh, switch between those two, so the minute a person gets to their income level and their goal, you automatically hedge it out. And you constantly reevaluate that between now and retirement to make sure you've got the optimal mix. That has an implicit option uh, that you're selling. And it always has a, a positive value, and it's got a significant value because of the time to retirement. At any point in time between now and your goal of 75% replacement ratio, it's gonna be worth more. Irrespective of what you do with alpha, credit, if you, how you invest that re return-seeking strategy. And it's purely because you've put this, um, uh, this goals-based approach in place. So I think to talk a little bit more about measures that you can use and um, some more quantitative stuff, my colleague Dwayne Kloppers will take you through the rest of the presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Okay, so what John was talking about was really goals-based investing, individualization, that sort of thing, all within the DC 
um, pension fund framework. What I'm going to focus on is how do we measure that worth? Can we actually put a number on it and hence justify it? Um, the second thing I'll look at is goal-based investing strategies. So if we have a strategy that is optimal, is designed with those um, targets in mind, how much better is it using these, these measures and objectives? Okay, so today if we're looking at um, measures for investments, and I just want to stress that we're talking about prospective measures. So a measure that you would use to select a strategic asset allocation. We're not talking about historical performance or something like that. We're talking about how do we decide, you know, how much do we put into equity, how much do we put into bonds for, for a member in a DC fund. Well, what do we have available to us today? We've got quite a lot. We've got means, bars, distributions. Um, something called the Legacy Index, which Vernon Buell spoke about at the, the last conference. So we have a few tools. These different tools, they use different variables, so things like replacement ratios, cash flows, investment returns, etc. So we're not short for, for tools to start off with. But each of these has its limitations. So for example, if I just I mentioned a mean, a mean is a you know, nice simple number, but unfortunately it hides quite a lot as well. So generally what we would do is we would use multiple measures. We might show a client some sort of indication of risk. We might show them some sort of indication of upside. That's great. Um, but I thought what I'd focus in on today is there's a growing body of literature around a couple of new measures. Um, these are measures of how good an investment strategy is for, for a DC pension fund. I'm going to look at three here today. And a kind of common theme coming through here is that they, they're simple and I'll put that in inverted commas, but simple in the sense that they're one number. It's one number you can show a client. There's also an element of intuition about them. They're relatively easy to interpret, or at least you can assign some sort of meaning to them. So they're not something quite as arbitrary as like ketosis or standard deviation, which is going to really mean very little to your client. Um, all three are based on expected utility, yeah, and I know a lot of actuaries don't love expected utility, so I'll have a few additional comments on that a little later. But for the time being, just take it to be utility or an index of wellness. Okay. Before we can look directly at these measures, we need to do a little bit of groundwork, and I promise we won't, won't uh, make the math too difficult. So just a couple of reminders back to varsity. Certainty equivalence. A certainty equivalence is an amount that you'd be indifferent to between um, this amount and a risky bet. So let's just illustrate that to make it a little simpler. Let's say we go to Bob and we say to him, Bob, we will give you a risky bet. We will allow you a 50-50 chance of getting 15,000 Rand or 25,000 Rand. What would a certain amount be that you're indifferent to? And Bob says, well, 22,000 Rand. That 22,000 Rand is his certainty equivalent. Let's just unpack that to make sure we know what it means. It means if we offered him 23,000 Rand, he'd say, oh, I don't want the risky bet. I'd like the 23,000 Rand instead. And if we offered, offered him, say, 19,000 Rand, he'd say, well, I have a clear preference for, for this risky bet. Give me the, twine, the coin toss any day. Okay, so that's a certainty equivalent. I want to introduce a slightly new concept, um, a certainty equivalent retirement income. Now, it's very similar to what we've just discussed. The idea here is to do something similar with, with a retirement income. So let's say we take Bob again, we say to him, well, we'll give you a 50-50 bet every month in your retirement that you're going to get 15,000 Rand of income in that month or 25,000 Rand of income. Or we can give you a certain amount. And he comes back to us and he says, well, you know, I'd prefer the 22,000, or I'd be indifferent again at the 22,000 Rand. 
What does that mean? That means that if we give him an inflation-linked annuity, a guaranteed inflation-linked real income, he's indifferent between these two streams. Again, if we offered him 25,000 Rand, then he'd go for the 25, and if he offered him um, 18, he'd go for the risky bet. Why are we doing this? Okay, it gives us a way to map uncertain or stochastic strategies back into a more certain scalable space. So if, for example, I have two strategies, A and B, let's say a living annuity and a with profits annuity, or two with profits annuities, by mapping them back into a certainty equivalent, I can compare that certainty equivalent. Let's say living annuity strategy A gives me a, um, a certainty equivalent income of 20,000 rand per month, and strategy B, 22,000 rand per month. I now have a measurable quantity. I can say that strategy B is 10% better than A, which is um, quite a nice number to work with. So let's unpack that a little bit more. I said we're going to talk a little bit about new measures of goodness that are coming up in the literature that we probably need to be aware of as actuaries. I'm not proposing these as replacements for what we use at the moment. I'm proposing them as things that we need to be aware of that are out there and that are potentially going to supplement our toolkits in the future. Okay. Most of these, these um, measures have been, become known as gamma. The idea there is, well, beta refers to the kind of core return that you get out of a market, passive return. Alpha refers to that additional return that you get because your manager um, is really ace at managing your money. Uh, gamma refers to how much better you do in terms of an income, in terms of your goals that you're attempting to achieve. So let's put those principles about certainty equivalence incomes to use. I'm going to start over here on, on the left with gamma. Gamma is probably the simplest one to, to jump into. It's the increase in that certainty equivalence income. So again, if I've got strategy A and B, let's say two with profits annuities, one is equivalent to a certain income of 10,000 Rand, the other 11,000 Rand, strategy B is 10% better off. Why is that nice? Well, it's nice because you can use it in research. If we look at utility theory itself, it's of an arbitrary level, so you can't compare, you can't say, well, you know, 10,000 utils is better than 8,000 by a certain amount. Yeah, you can actually give a percentage, which is quite useful. But probably still, you know, although it's, it's an indication of wellness, probably still quite, quite abstract for, for the man on the street. So introduce, sorry, I just wanted to mention, that's uh, out of a paper by, by Blanchard and Kaplan. It's a, a Morningstar paper in, in 2013. The second measure I wanted to draw attention to is something called initial gap. And that's out of a paper by Dempster et al. that's coming out later this year. The initial gap is a similar kind of concept. It says, well, let's measure wellness and let's, let's check the underperforming strategy and see how much you would need to top it up. So, for example, if Bob's faced with the strategy A and B, we say to him, well, Bob, you'd actually need to put in a million rand extra into strategy A for it to give you the same wellness as strategy B. Why is that measure nice? Well, it's quite useful for having a discussion with the man on the street because it's a rand value. It's really, really simple to understand. Um, the downside to that is it's less useful for academic work because a million rand today is not equivalent to a million rand in the future, so there's, there comes a few issues with that. And then the final measure I wanted to point out, which I think is actually very interesting, probably one of the mo most interesting of the three, is gamma equivalent alpha. So the idea yeah, is we say, well, let's again take our two strategies, A and B, and let's have a look. Let's say, well, strategy B has been designed around achieving a goal, and we know it's very efficient. How much additional alpha or outperformance would we need to get in strategy A 
to get us to the same wellness as strategy B. So for example, you might say, well, let's go the balanced route. Let's leave the ball in the courts of the asset manager. Let's forget about goals. Because I believe in active management and I believe this manager is going to outperform. I do not want to turn my back on that kind of paradigm. Let's say that we go and work out this gamma equivalence alpha and that we find that by focusing on goals, you can get the equivalent of 50 basis points of alpha per year. You would then need to back yourself with your active strategy to outperform by at least 50 basis points per annum, which is quite an interesting way to look at it. So gamma equivalence alpha is just really an interesting way to have a discussion around whether um, you know, active and passive, whether by moving to a goals-based framework and removing some of the, the asset allocation decisions from your, your investment manager, well, where does that value lie? Um, I just wanted to point out there's an interesting potential use there for those of you who've read the draft regulation on, on the defaults. A very interesting read, so I highly recommend that you read it. But there's a focus, quite a strong focus there on passive investments. It requires that you at least consider passive investments as a default strategy. Um, you need to be able to demonstrate that as well. So yeah, it's quite an interesting measure to have to use in a discussion like that on whether active management really makes, makes sense or, or there's value in it. Okay. The next section I want to just show how one would use those measures to illustrate it. Um, this comes again out of that Dempster paper. It's called Life Cycle Goal Achievement or Portfolio Volatility Reduction. I'm just going to use one of the examples in there. The example looks at two strategies. The one strategy is what we could call a returns-based strategy. So it's typical old mean variance portfolio theory that we all know, a highly aggressive strategy. The second strategy is, let's just call it an optimized goal-based strategy. So a strategy that was designed with the objective of, of meeting income goals. And what we're looking at here is, well, what's the difference between these two strategies? Are we talking about something in the decimals? Are we talking about something you know, meaty that's, that's real value? And let's use um, those new measures that we just discussed now. Okay. Quite a lot of information on this slide, so I'll unpack it nice and slowly. We've got two investors, A and B. A is a young guy. He's the same age as me, so I'm going to call him young. Um, he's making £60,000 a, a year, but he doesn't have any savings yet for, for his retirement. Profile B is someone who's just retired. He's 65, um, so obviously he's no longer earning a, um, a salary, and he has £600,000 saved. Let's have a look at these, these measures. So what are these measures? These measures are how much better the goals-based strategy was than the strategy that was just designed for, for returns, than the mean variance or Markowitz portfolio theory type of approach. Let's take them one column at a time. Gamma, remember that was the increase in certainty equivalent. Around a 10% difference, and that's quite a big difference. Uh, maybe a little bit of an abstract number. Let's look at something like initial gap. In this case, over two million rand of difference. Um, so what that's saying is profile B, for example, this investor at 65, in choosing between a traditional Markowitz type of portfolio and a properly optimized, uh, proper goals-based approach, he would need to inject an additional 2 million rand, or more than 2 million rand, to just get the two onto, the e on, onto an equal footing. So he'd have to put an extra 2 million rand into his, into his return-based approach to, to get them on an equal footing. If we look at that in a, the gamma equivalence alpha space, so 
how much alpha would you need to generate to get them equivalent? Around 20 to 40 basis points, it looks like. This number, of course, depends. It depends on how old you are, where you are in your life, etc., how well-funded you are. But the point here is that this individual who's 30 years old, this gold-based approach is, is, is better by, say, 22 basis points per annum. So this individual, he might consider passive, or if he wants to consider active management, he needs to be fairly convinced that he's going to make his 22 basis points. In fact, at least 22 basis points, and not just next year, the following year, and the rest of his life. So potentially you know, 50 or 60 years in, in this case for someone this age. So I think that's quite an interesting number to just um, kind of slosh around and, and think about and, and you know, potentially use with that new regulation. Just two other applications. So I mentioned that new regulation. Of course, Regulation 28 says that your assets should be appropriate for liabilities. It mentions that in the preamble. Um, you know, what does that mean in a defined contribution space? How do we apply that? And then a, a second point, treating customers fairly, which we know is the buzzword everywhere at the moment. Um, TCF requires that advice should consider the circumstances of an individual. So TCF is all about the end client, you know, who's our end client member in the pension fund, and it requires that we consider their circumstances. So, um, you know, to the extent that we see this kind of value creation through goals based and through individualization, um, I think it speaks to how important it is to put in an appropriate amount of effort in meeting these two regulatory items, what that implies in terms of the effort we should invest as actuaries. Okay, so you might be looking at this and thinking, okay, well, that's lovely. You've gone and created a new measure in terms of um, utility theory, and then you've gone and optimized this portfolio. You know, who are you kidding, Dwayne? Obviously, it's going to do better. Like, you've gone and used an objective function that is based on the same measure as your actual measure of value. Of course, it's going to outperform. So let's look at it in a couple of more traditional um, sort of measures or frameworks. I've just put up here a 30th percentile, and the top row is the goals-based approach. The bottom row is the, the returns-based approach. We've got profile A and B again. A is just split up between pre- and post-retirement. What you can see is consistently this 30th percentile. This is income per annum, 39,000 pounds, 46,000 pounds, et cetera. Um, Consistently, this 30th percent is significantly higher for the, for the optimal goals-based approach. Um, okay. The second additional measure I put in here is, is a probability, basically a shortfall probability. So this is probability that your income is, con um, is higher than £40,000 per annum in any given year. And again, you see significant and material outperformance of this optimal goals-based strategy. So for example, profile A before retirement has almost a half-half chance of outperforming the £40,000 per annum goal, 15%, uh, so significantly lower for, for that aggressive mean variance portfolio theory approach. Okay, usefulness about util of utility. I said I'll have a few additional comments on utility and you know, what are its limitations. First thing I want to stress here is there are major limitations to these measures I've shown today. They're highly parametric. They make assumptions about a member's utility, the shape of that curve, um, his levels of risk aversion, assumptions about an asset distribution. So highly dependent on assumptions. But that's exactly why you want to be using all you know, the rest of our toolkit. Means, variances, distributions, all those other nice things. And, and checking that all of this still stands when you apply that more conventional theory. 
It's also quite complex to calculate. And although the base idea of wellness is, is probably quite easy to, to explain to an individual, the exact methodology of this calculation is clearly completely impossible to, to explain to the end client. And then finally, a comment on utility. I know utility theory gets quite a lot of rap. Um, you know, a lot of people question, is it representative of how people make decisions? Um, can we really measure utility? So are we sticking probes into people's brains and measuring it? Or even if we're not going to measure it, is it possible to create reasonable uh, parameterizations of utility models that represent large groups of people? So you know, can we create three portfolio channels that represent utility theory for, for homogenous groups of people? Irrespective of where you sit on, on all of that, whether you believe that, don't believe that, etc., expected, discounted expected utility can be divorced from that classical interpretation. So that classical interpretation is, well, we're measuring you know, happiness inside your brain in some sort of unit, which is quite ab uh, abstract, obviously. You could always just think of discounted expected utility as just a wellness scale. You know, call it X, Y, Z wellness scale or measurement. Um, in the same way, if you think of something like vitality, and I don't want to pick on discovery, but if you think of something like vitality, obviously, you know, you're not expecting that to, to predict to the you know, day when you're going to pass away or how healthy you are or what the cost of supporting your medical health care is, but it's a good proxy. It makes sense. You know, more exercise, you're going to be better off. And utility is the same kind of concept. More consumption is better. Less consumption, the worse it gets. You know, the more it starts to hit you and the more penal that... that penalty becomes. So the conclusions, yeah? Um, I see I've made a typo, yeah? A variety of interesting new goodness measures that are available coming up in the literature in the last sort of two years. And I think it's worth our noting them as actuaries and, and keeping, keeping abreast of that. The other findings here was that returns in goal-based investing, they're not equivalent. They result in different investment strategies. They result in very different value and benefit to the client. And that difference is not small. It is material. And then just that significant value can be unlocked by using appropriate objectives. So, you know, linking your investment strategy to, to your retirement goals um, and using proper, proper um, optimization. Cool. I wonder if we, we've got, got some time for, for questions or comments. Yeah, I think while you're thinking of some questions, I thought um, we actually put together a nice video just to summarize some of the things for you. I think hopefully it gives you a sense of, um, I think specifically with the new regulations, where things are going, um, the legislation, I think actuaries have a really important part to play in the investments uh, of, of members, specifically if you look at it from a, a goals-based um, approach. And I think this... Um, let me just get the, the video. I think this summarizes it quite nicely in terms of where we've been and where we're Let's going to. Let's look at where we've been, what's changed, and where we're going in terms of structuring investment strategies to meet individual needs in retirement. We begin most notably with the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution retirement funds. This change essentially shifted the responsibility to the individual to save enough over their 30 or 40 working years, invest those savings appropriately, and to convert those savings into an income in retirement to live on for the rest of their lives. The earliest strategies to do this were typically a one-size-fits-all approach, where all members in a retirement fund were invested in the same investment portfolio. These investment strategies were based on the average or typical member, predominantly structured with growth assets in mind. Later, it was recognized that the needs of individuals closer to retirement were quite different from younger members. 
Funds started introducing capital protection options for individuals within five to ten years of retirement. These elected options recognized that individuals who had saved for many years required more certainty and could not absorb the risks that came with more aggressive investment strategies. These were the first investment strategies to recognize that age and time to retirement are key factors when deciding on how to invest more optimally to meet an individual's retirement income needs. During the 2000s, technology advanced and more sophisticated life-stage investment strategies became commonplace and typically used as a default. These strategies recognized that younger individuals needed to be invested in growth assets to accumulate sufficient assets, and that closer to retirement, individuals required more conservative investment strategies. This was achieved with an automatic phasing down period, typically taking place gradually within 10 years prior to retirement. Over the last few years, life stage investment strategies have become more sophisticated. It was recognized that different individuals have different needs and risk tolerances. In response, multiple drawdown strategies started being used. Each channel was based on the desired choice of annuity with the investment portfolios in each channel being phased automatically into a strategy that best matches the underlying annuity. This approach recognized not only the age and retirement dates of individuals, but also the individual's desires on how to convert their accumulated capital into an income. However, this approach still assumes that everyone entering the de-risking phase of a life stage strategy has the same level of savings relative to their lifestyle, the same planned retirement age, and the same expectations for their income requirements after retirement. Today, technology and financial modeling have evolved even further, making it possible for every individual in a fund to have their own tailor-made solution. Individualized solutions take into account the following key factors that have an impact on the ideal way to invest and meet your retirement goals. Your age, your gender, your planned retirement date, whether you have dependents, the amount you've already accumulated for your retirement, the amount you're contributing towards your retirement, your desired level of income in retirement and the certainty with which it is required, the minimum level of income you need to survive in retirement and the certainty with which that's required. Defaults in retirement funds need to change. Given technological advancements, it is now possible to ensure that they can meet the needs of a greater proportion of the membership. Retirement funds should be considering more individualized solutions, focusing on the retirement goals of individual members. John, Dwayne, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to open the floor for a couple of questions. We've got about 10 minutes or so. Um, there are some roaming mics. Uh, please introduce yourself when asking the question. that 85% of, of retirement assets goes into living annuities. So uh, just your comments on that, if, uh, if it will change your, your approach and how do you think we, we're going to change, uh, obviously, um, the, the, the big move into to living annuities. And then just also comment on the individualization. Um, Obviously, different groups of members will have different CPI, actually. So are you using a constant CPI basket? So obviously, if you're richer, then overseas holidays, the increase in that price will probably be yours, um, related to your 
increase in cost of living. If you're very poor, then say the cost of, of basic foods and, and transport would actually be your, your CPR basket. And then also when you, when you do your, your statistic modeling, do you, obviously, so you actually, um, do you assume that your modeling is independent of someone's current financial situation? Because obviously if you've, if you've got a lot of money invested already, then obviously you might be more um, risk-seeking. Yeah. Thanks. So, sure, a decent number of questions. Um, okay, I'm going to work backwards through them. The modeling you asked where, just because it's increasing complexity of answer, but you asked whether the modeling is independent of the, the individual circumstances. Absolutely not. So, the modeling, for example, in my section of the presentation, um, relates to you know how much does that person start off with in the bank, how much do they start off with in their retirement savings, how much are they earning, and that's obviously going to vary. Um, and that makes a very, very big difference in terms of the answer that you, you come up with. Um, and one of the places you could see that was with our profile A and B. The one guy was 30 and the other guy was 65. Um, what I didn't show was in that paper a lot about the, the actual asset allocations that come out of it, uh, markedly different. So to answer your question, absolutely, the modeling would need to be personalized. And I think that was a big theme in John's uh, presentation, that individualized modeling that technologically it's becoming possible um, and that there is real value in it. Okay. The second question you asked related to CPI. So CPI varies um, per individual, obviously. Did we take that into account in the modeling? Uh, in the results that are showing there, no, that, that doesn't incorporate that. Um, it is possible to incorporate that in, in modeling and work around it. Maybe just some concepts on it. You do need to be careful that you're not being spurious on it. Um, if we're talking about 6.5% versus 6% in terms of CPI, or 7% relative to 6%, um, but we're making decisions about equities and bonds, for example, where you know, the vol on this asset class is 15% or whatever the case may be, um, and this asset class tracks your liabilities you know, very, very closely, like that maybe starts to come out in the wash. But granted, you can't make that assumption. Ideally, you do want to incorporate it in, into the modeling. Um, just one other thing on that is, of course, that you can't hedge other types of CPI. So um, if you look across history across the last few thousand years, there have been times where you could actually hedge specific components um, of, of CPI, like specific food types, etc., through certain types of derivative. At the moment, you can only hedge, uh, you know, like basket CPI. Um, the living annuity uh, take-up there, I mean, you're absolutely right. The bulk of people do go for living annuities. I, I didn't fully understand the question. Were you asking, should we be encouraging people to go the more guaranteed route? Or? Well, let me, let me I mean, give you my, my perspective, and maybe we could open it up then further. <clears throat> I actually think that the, in, in terms of the default regulations and the way that goals-based investing that we've presented here, the, the pre-retirement, should always be constructed in the view of what happens after retirement. I think these two, they're two pieces of the, the same puzzle. The reality is that a typical um, goals-based investment approach in a retirement fund in itself, I don't think will change the take-up of um, you know, living annuities in retirement. Um, that's why I think that, that there is that component of default annuity strategies that it, Treasury's uh, put in, and I think the two together are actually going to, it's, it's going to have the value. It doesn't mean, though, <clears throat> that living annuities are inappropriate. 
you can still apply a goals-based approach for living in UAT. It's just how you come up with the um, investment portfolios. It's focusing now on the goal instead of return maximization. But I think the added benefit of a goals-based approach throughout from day one is that you start educating the member about what it is that they're trying to target, my income. Is it 100,000 rand, 50 rand, relative to your current um, you know, lifestyle? And I think over time, the mindset, by the time they get to retirement, is then not, Mr. Broker, can I please get the best returning fund, but rather, this is my stuff for retirement. How can I get the, a decent income with reasonable certainty? And I think that could change. Whether it will mean more annuitization, I think if you look at it, if goals-based approach uses a risk-free reference asset, I think it will have that as a reference. Um, but again, I think there will probably be a lot of innovation in the industry around that, maybe a little bit more uh, with, with longevity protection. But it, the main thing is um, these two pieces go together. Neil, maybe just one extra point on that um, that I want to stress from what John said. Goals-based investing is not de-risking. It's not the same thing. Goals-based investing is investing for a goal. Um, if you need the growth, that might, may mean equity. It, it's not the same thing as uh, what we speak of in South Africa as, as LDI, you know, completely de-risking something. So living annuities, absolutely. Um, have a place in, in yeah, I think when you, when you specify your goal, it's not goal with absolute certainty. You can, but you can actually dial up or down your probability. How certain do you want to be? That will then drive what you take in retirement. So, for example, if you want to be absolutely certain and you can get there, then a guaranteed annuity is definitely the way to go. However, if you dial down, if, you, if you're willing to take on more risk within this framework, it may mean that you could still um, you know, take a living annuity, but now you're doing it for the right reasons and you understand it rather than not understanding and for the wrong reasons. Thanks, John. There's a question here. Nikki. Nikki Holzhausen. Given that we are looking at investment strategies with different eyes, the question I'm asking myself is, Are there different basic asset classes that have presented themselves? Or are we just, and, and certainly in the, I'm asking with reference to the literature that you've seen. So what I'm hearing you say is we're looking at, we're doing our modeling, we're doing our optimization on the three basic asset classes. Are there new basic asset classes that are coming into the equation as well? And probably linking to your de-risking point, but I don't want to cloud it with that. I really just want to ask a clean question. Are there different asset classes from, from what you've seen? Absolutely. I think um, you, you pick up on a, a couple of really key points here. You mentioned de-risking. So if we think of goals-based investing or de-risking and how we used to have this discussion, say, five or ten years ago, it was very much, you know, what assets can match CPI, that kind of discussion. And there wasn't really a clear place for alternatives or, you know, how do you work the equity into there, et cetera. And this, this new kind of discussion around goals-based investing and getting to your goals does recognize the role of those other asset classes. So the Dempster paper, for example, in there, um, models across a variety of asset classes, including alternatives, such as commodities, um, and I think hedge funds. And those asset classes actually start to feature there. Not in enormous amounts, but let's say a 5% allocation or something like that. And what you're picking up there is there, what we've traditionally known about these asset classes, that they're a diversifier. 
Um, so you're picking up, when you look at this problem more holistically, optimizing across a variety of asset classes, you pick up those other roles those asset classes do, do play. But I think it's important, um, you know, a, a pure goals-based approach isn't necessarily about the asset class. I think asset class is one component and it's quite important, especially when you're having a look at, in basic terms, what you need is you need two portfolios. You need a return-seeking portfolio and you need then your risk-free reference portfolio and then you can actually dial up or down the risk to you know, achieve your probability. Both portfolios are traditional asset classes. You know, your return-seeking one could have uh, equities, bonds, it could have offshore, Africa, etc., what we have currently. The key ingredient is how and when you decide to switch between this portfolio and this portfolio and doing it in a dynamic way that the minute you get to your goal, you lock it in or rebalancing. So it's actually more a case of, you can almost see it as a, an alternative to tactical asset allocation and rebalancing and then eventually lock in compared to your current way you do tactical asset allocation, which history has shown that managers struggle consistently to add the value. But in a goals-based approach, if you look at it this way, we can show through the, the modeling that Dwayne's done and others, it can consistently outperform relative to the goal. So it's not necessarily about the asset classes, it's about the process and how you switch between those two, and it can accommodate all asset classes. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, John. Uh, there's one more question there. We've got time for, let's have, sorry. There's, there's two questions. <laughs> um, we've got about five minutes left, so please could you we, li we like questions that are quite that enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, thank you. I'm taller than you, Costa. But yes, most <laughs> people are. <laughs> um, it's, it's more of a comment um, about... Um, well, the first comment I have is, by the way, thanks very much uh, to Alexander Forbes for, for recognizing the, the fluidity of, of gender in your presentation and giving us five different gender levels in your <laughs> strategy, so I think that's very progressive. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but the thing that struck me about it, and I think it's, it's, it's the first step, I, I really like the idea of the goals base, and that, to me the goals base is exactly what you just explained, which is that you switch down and lock in return, or lock in a certain level as soon as you, you feel like, like somebody's achieved their goal based on, on whatever criteria is set up. Um, so the note I've made for myself here is that, um, goal that the goal strategy only makes sense if the goal is achievable. Otherwise, if you set up a goal, as you said, most of our funds do, set up a goal of 75 replacement ratio but have no contribution structure and a retirement age that, doesn't, that basically makes this impossible, their goal strategy will be no different from a, a traditional strategy because you never will lock in because you're always chasing an impossible return. And I think the importance of that conversation with the trustees to start with, as an investment consultant or as the actuary, you, you can't really start until you have agreed on either reducing the target, increasing the, the retirement age, increasing the contribution or doing something so that the, the goal now falls into an achievable range and then you can start playing around with, with locking it in. And I, and I think if you skip that step or if you get pushed away from that step and said, let's just play with investments because that's the, that's the free stuff, um, then this whole thing won't work. So I think put, putting your foot down, and I don't know whether you have any comments on how to do that, but, but really getting, getting the fund designed to be right, and then you can, you can proceed. I mean, I fully agree with your point. You, you have to start with some sort of realistic... Um, problem that you're attempting to solve and have that discussion. Hopefully these sorts of measures, this kind of thinking around investments, etc., starts to shift people's minds to the goal 
and that in itself gives the air time to have that discussion. Because I think it's often very easy for a trustee to think, oh, well, you know, I understand 20 basis points of alpha, I understand 10 basis points of cost or 50 basis points of cost, let's have that discussion. But as soon as you start drawing attention to this and illustrating that it can be done or that it can be measured, etc., hopefully that it, it brings that more front of mind. No, but I think you, you touched the heart of the, the problem. And I think we, unfortunately, we didn't have time to unpack things further, but I think the whole goals-based approach is exactly that, is to show the person, you know, what is your desired, what is your and the likelihood in a simple way, and it will show you that you can't, you know, you can't get there. What are the levers at your disposal? One of them is your age. Um, you could get rid of your spouse, or you <laughs> <laughs> theoretically. <laughs> but the, the, the point is, it's all about the communication. And for those of you that actually think that you know, the, the communication aspect of this is, is difficult, it's actually not difficult. It's actually very simple. Because all you need to tell the member is, how much income do you want? And then you know, the, the, the modeling and all the things happen in the background. As long as you're able to show them, you know, if you contribute a little bit more, what it does, and then um, you know, what your investment strategy can add, it's actually surprisingly easy. The math and the science happens in the background. It's similar to when you're running a car. You don't have to know exactly what's going on into the compression pumps and all the other things. You just want to see the nice dashboard, the car's working, it's all great. The actuaries are doing all the work in the background. But it's exactly that point. And I think if we do have time, maybe another session, one can actually unpack these things. Communication and all those other levers are very, very important. But also when they change, if your circumstances change and you decide to change your retirement date, your strategy must change. And this whole process is quite dynamic. A uh, question in the back. Yeah, thanks, thanks for an interesting presentation. Just a couple of questions. On the, so the two portfolios, John, that you talked about, lease risk portfolio and your RSA, um, I assume the lease risk portfolio is inflation-linked bonds. Maybe just some comments on what is in the lease risk portfolio if not inflation-linked bonds. And if it is inflation-linked bonds, how do you see the 1.2, well, the currently 1.2 trillion DC market being able to map to the fairly limited um, universe of inflation-linked bonds in terms of sizing. Treasury has also just recently reduced the amount of uh, inflation-linked bonds coming to market. Maybe just a comment on switching costs um, to go from the lease risk portfolio into the RSA or vice versa. Um, and then um, if that includes illiquid assets in the RSA portfolio, just maybe a comment on how that would be treated. And the final aspect is it seems like this is effectively a variation on CPPI, you know, switching between the two portfolios. Now, CPPI have, you know, has had some dramatic failures in the past where you can't switch out in time. Um, and if you are going to do it using options, then I'm not sure that the SA capital markets are sufficiently deep and liquid for you to do it using options as, as is the case in the US and the UK. So how do you protect against the failures of CPPI? Let's start with risk-free assets. Yes, I, I would agree that your I mean, kind of Rolls-Royce of, of risk-free assets in, in DC space would be a, an inflation-linked bond. Um, that would be sensitive to, to how old a member is. If somebody is 20 years old, your ability to hedge your you know, 40 by 60, uh, you know, potentially not that great. Um, but yes, inflation-linked bonds are probably your starting point. Um, you know, is it worth having a discussion about uh, these kind of concepts when the inflation-linked market is limited? Yes, I do think it is worthwhile. Um, 
you know, like if goals-based investing starts taking off, it doesn't mean that the one or two trillion, whatever the case may be, is going to convert tomorrow. Um, and equally, you're not going to, you know, if somebody's using a goals-based approach in, in a DC framework, they are still going to have quite a high growth exposure um, because you need that growth. You know, you're not going to be allocating across your lifetime, say, 50% of your allocation to, to linkers. It's, it's going to come in later on in life and phase in. Otherwise, you're just never going to get there. So, yes, I, I do still think that it is worthwhile, despite those constraints. Um, does that answer your questions? Is there something else? CPPR. Oh, oh, switching costs. Do you want to answer that or is it fine if I Yeah, go for it. Yeah, switching costs. Um, are you referring to switching costs due to the dynamism of the strategy or, okay. Yes, absolutely. Um, so if you look at the literature on this topic, that's generally accounted for. Um, and there's a, there's a decent amount of literature on optimization of goals-based strategies in DC. Um, and it always reflects your cost of switching, because otherwise, you know, you, you, it, it's just not representative of, of the real-life problem. Yeah. yeah, I think there are also international examples of, uh, you know, these kinds of approaches, and the switching is not as much as you would have thought. Um, also, it depends on a whole number of things. If you've got a, a platform and you pool, um, it is possible to, to minimize uh, some of the switching. But remember, that switching is being replaced by other switching that you probably would have done when you're focusing on a returns-based approach. Um, so you've got, to net those, you've got to net those two off, and you've also got to look at that relative to the extra added value and the gamma, the alpha um, of that, and I think that would be far less uh, significant compared to the value add of that. I just want to, you know, in terms of the risk-free, risk-free doesn't, in a, it can mean pure inflation-linked bonds with mortality and longevity protection. But you can also set your, your risk-free or your reference portfolio dialing up the risk to balance those things. So there are some, um, there is, has some work been done by a couple of managers that have actually shown in terms of minimizing your interest rate risk, um, you know, you only have to go up to maybe 70% in inflation-linked bonds with 30% growth. So, you know, that could be the, the end reference point for a trustee body that's acceptable balance of all of those things, and then you optimize. So it doesn't have to be pure uh, inflation-linked bonds, but I think the end result would probably be a higher take-up, although it's already happened in South Africa. If you look at the ILBs that are issued and taken up, the vast majority or a big proportion, I think it was like over the 50%, actually taken up by pension funds who are holders of that. I think that would continue. And the other one relative to our earlier question, probably more longevity protection will start being considered as these things develop uh, over time. Thank you, John. Thank you, Dwayne. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any more time for, for questions on this session. Just when you thought it was safe to come to a, a pensions conference, um, you heard topics like option pricing, gamma equivalent alpha, certainty equivalence, um, utility theory, discounted expected utility. Um, I'm sure your brains are respectively fried. <laughs> Certainly mine is. Um, um, I'd like to thank uh, both John and Dwayne for their very insightful presentation. Um, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's a very relevant subject and certainly one that, that focuses our minds um, as practitioners and as advisors to, to large institutions like pension funds um, to focus on what it is that ultimately members are there to achieve. Um, you know, when, when members were members of defined benefit arrangements, the focus was on income. Uh, we had this sudden move to defined contribution and suddenly the liability was this pot of money. Um, we lost sight of what it is that the ultimate goal was. And I think this, this presentation 
certainly brings to light what it is that ultimately these objectives need to, 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 to be. Um, ultimately, members' needs, whether they're members of defined benefit funds or whether they're members of defined contribution arrangements, are no different. Um, it's to achieve some level of financial security when they get to retirement. And, and to start or to change the conversation to one that starts focusing one's mind on that end goal, I think is the right, uh, is, is, is the right conversation to be had. So, um, John, Dwayne, on behalf of the Retirement Matters Committee of the Actual Society and all of us here today, we thank you for a very insightful presentation. Thanks very much.